Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. We all make mistakes, and when we do, we're often quick to criticize ourselves. I know I am, but self-criticism can take a toll on our mental and emotional health. There's a better way to respond to personal setbacks. It's called self-compassion, and with practice, anyone can learn to cultivate it in their daily lives. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Kristen Neff. She's widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on self-compassion. Dr. Neff is an Associate Professor in Educational Psychology at the University of Texas, Austin, and she's also the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Kristen, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to talk with you. Tell me about you, um, who you are, and then really how you became interested in researching the topic of self-compassion. Right. So, uh, yes, I'm, I'm a researcher, but more and more I'm, I'm a teacher of self-compassion. I'm mm. actually um, retiring at the end of this year so I can devote full time to my writing and teaching self-compassion. Um, but, I, but I didn't come up with the idea of self-compassion. I, I learned it about 25 years ago, a long time ago. It was my last year of graduate school at UC Berkeley. And basically, I was a basket case. I had just gotten a divorce. It was a really messy divorce, a lot of like feelings of self-doubt and shame and just stuff coming up. And I was also feeling a lot of stress about, you know, would I get a job after devoting six or seven years of my life to this PhD? There were absolutely no guarantees. So I thought I'd learn mindfulness meditation to deal with my stress. Um, and lucky for me, I went to a group that taught in the tradition of a um, Vietnamese Zen teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. who talks a lot about self-compassion. So the very first night I went, even before I understood what this meditation thing was, I got the message that especially when you're struggling, it's important to turn the lens of compassion inward just as much as outward. And it was funny. I was like, what? (laughs) That has never even dawned on me that I could intentionally be kind, warm, supportive, helpful to myself when I was struggling. Um, But, you know, I tried it out. And although it did feel a little awkward, I was just so impressed by the immediate difference it made in my ability just to cope with my day-to-day stressors and, you know, kind of how I related to myself. It really, really helped. So then I did get a job at the University of Texas, and uh, I started researching it about 20 years ago, actually. And at that time, you know, not many, well, no one had researched it precisely this way. People had researched very similar topics. But I created a scale to measure self-compassion, and I defined it. And then now there's almost 4,000 studies on it. So it's really, it's really taken off, which is very gratifying. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so let's talk about what exactly self-compassion is and in your definition, how do we define it? And then how is it also different from things like self-esteem? Okay, good questions. So, um, well, so the easy answer of self-compassion is, is just turning that friendly, compassionate attitude inward. But when I decided I wanted to measure it, I realized that I needed a more formal definition Mm. and that there were actually three separate components to self-compassion that were all needed. So there's kindness, which I talked about being warm and supportive and, um, you know, helping yourself. But there's also mindfulness. Mindfulness is actually at the foundation of self-compassion. In other words, so mindfulness is the ability to be present with what is without kind of immediately trying to fight it or resist it or run away from it. And typically when pain is present, you know, when we feel badly about ourselves or something difficult is happening, the last thing we want to do is be mindful of it, right? We best be somewhere else. (laughs) So we need to be mindful to be able to kind of turn toward and acknowledge, hey, this is really hard. You know, if you just like stiff up or lift it, you can't be a good friend to yourself. It'd be like if a friend calls you and you're like, I'm too busy. You know, we have to take the call from ourselves and say, wow, I'm really having a hard time. And then that evokes that sense of, you know, care and kindness. What can I do to help? But also what I realized when I, the more I thought about it, really important is what's different um, between self-compassion and self-pity. Self-pity mm. is woe is me. Self-pity is a self-focused emotion, as if I'm the only one who's struggling or, you know, it's only me who's made this mistake or has this fatal flaw. Um, And compassion, by definition, is rooted in the shared human experience, right? If I have compassion for you, I think, oh, I've been there too. This is something we all go through. So self-compassion has a connected aspect. It's really not about me at all. I, I could have just called it inner compassion. There's really no self involved. It's just saying that my experience and my experience of imperfection is worthy of compassion like all other human beings. And also, you know, sometimes we, we, we fall into the trap of thinking that something has gone wrong when we make a mistake or something has gone wrong when we have issues like health issues or relationship issues. But in fact, that, that is the human experience, right? It's not like normal means perfect. And when it's not perfect, something has gone wrong. But we think, we think that way. And the reason that's so damaging is not only are we struggling, we feel all alone, we feel weird, we feel isolated, we feel abnormal. So what a really important thing that self-compassion does is it kind of normalizes imperfection and, and pain. You know, this is something that we all go through. I'm not alone. It's not just me. And that actually allows us to catastrophize a little bit less, to feel a little bit less isolated. And therefore, we have more resources to try to help ourselves in some way. And, and so I guess, how is, how is that different or how is that linked to self-esteem? Cause I understand self-pity, oh, right. but, but what about yes. like, self-esteem. if I, yes. if I, if I say something to myself, like, well, I, I don't deserve compassion. Is that, is yes. that pity or is that just lack of self-esteem? Like, how do you differentiate those? Right. Right. So, um, well, well, so, both self-compassion and self-esteem are forms of self-worth. So if mm. you say, I'm not, I'm not worthy of compassion, then you'd probably be low both in self-compassion and self-esteem. <laughs> but the source of self-esteem, self, the source of self-worth in the two is actually quite different. So self-esteem is a positive evaluation of worth. Like I'm a worthy person. I'm not a worthy person. I'm a good person. I'm a so-so person. 
and typically it's contingent on things like successful performance, right? I, I'm worthy if I do well, but if I fail, I'm worthless. Or um, social approval, I'm worthy if other people think I'm worthy. Um, or, or appearance, actually, is one of the biggest domains in which people get their self-esteem. I'm attractive, therefore I'm worthy. I'm unattractive, therefore I'm not worthy. Mm. So self-compassion, the sense of worth, it just comes from being a flawed human being like everyone else. Right? There's no judgment or evaluation. So you, you deserve compassion whether you're successful or whether you're flawed. Right, whether you like what you look in the mirror or what you don't. It's, a, it's an unconditional source of worthiness that simply comes from being a human being like everyone else, trying the best you can. And the reason that's so important is because the, the self-worth associated with self-compassion is much more stable mm-hmm. than self-esteem. You know, and also, like some people get their self-esteem by feeling better than others. You know, narcissism, yeah. or at least being above average. I mean, it's not okay to be average, right? We all have to be above <laughs> average which leads to things like bullying or gossiping or putting other people down to feel good about yourself. With self-compassion, you just have to be a flawed human being like everyone else. Mm. So it's, it's more connecting as opposed to disconnecting. So you might say it has the benefits of self-worth that are linked to self-esteem, but we don't have to like flip over backwards to try to get it. It's just there intrinsically as part of our human nature. I'm, I'm already feeling more compassion for myself just listening to you talk. <laughs> So, yeah. so let's talk about myths related to self-compassion. Can you, can you discuss what some of those are and perhaps maybe debunk yes. some of them for us? Yes, there's about um, five myths that come up again and again. It doesn't matter what culture I'm talking to. It's crazy. They're the same ones. Um, one is that it's weak. People think compassion just means like taking a break, going easy on yourself. Mm. They think it's soft and weak. Well, you know, sometimes the compassionate thing to do to alleviate your suffering is to take a break, but sometimes it's not, right? So, um, in other words, if you need to be brave or strong or say no or stand up for yourself or fight the good fight, these are all forms of self-compassion. So, for instance, what we know is people who go through really difficult times, it could be um, divorce, it could be COVID, there's a lot of research on coping with COVID, it could be coping with cancer. Or we even have a lot of data on uh, combat soldiers. What we know is that when life gets tough, the more compassionate you are, the more you have your own back, the stronger you are, the more able you are to cope and get through. And think about it. You know, if you're an inner enemy, if you're cutting yourself down, I'm ashamed of you, you're horrible. That's not going to make you stronger. That's going to make you weaker. But saying, I'm here for you. How can I help? What do you need? That type of supportive attitude makes you much stronger. So that's one myth that the research totally disproves. Um, another one, big one, is that it's selfish, right? People think, well, I only have like five units of compassion. So if I give three to me, I'm only going to have two left over for you. But of course, it doesn't work that way. It's additive. The more compassion we give ourselves, the more resources we have available to give others. So research shows, for instance, that People in relationships with more self-compassion are, you know, more giving and intimate with their partners. They're more able to give to their partners. They're more willing to compromise. Um, and also, uh, really importantly, it reduces burnout. Mm. So if, whether you're a parent or, you know, you're, yeah. you're a professional caregiver, if you, if you give and give and give to others and you like, are mean to yourself, you will burn out. So what self-compassion does is, again, it allows you to refill your battery, so to speak, so that you can sustain giving to others. 
So that's one myth. Um, probably the, the biggest myth, though, that, that stands in the way more than anything else is the myth that it's going to undermine your motivation. So mm. You need to be hard on yourself, crack the whip in order to achieve. And if you're compassionate, you'll lose your edge. It's like, oh, well, that's good enough, right? Um, it's, it's totally false. So first of all, your, your goal, how high your standards are, like whether you want to be a professional athlete or, you know, maybe your goals aren't that high. How high your goals are has nothing to do with self-compassion. If, you, if it's important to you, if you want to be like a top number one professional athlete, you're going to want that whether or not you have self-compassion. The whole difference is, what do I do when I fall slightly short of my goals? Do I beat myself up? Do I call myself names? Um, and if I do that, what's actually going to happen is it's going to undermine my motivation. I'm going to lose self-confidence. I'm going to create a lot of anxiety for myself. I'm going to develop fear of failure. I might procrastinate because I don't want to risk, you know, calling myself names. So it actually works against successful motivation. Um, but if you're self-compassionate, what it does is, okay, I didn't reach my goals. Well, I would like to reach my goals, not, not because I'm inadequate if I don't, but because I care about myself and I want to be happy. I want to be well. And so what that means is, well, it's okay to fail. Everyone fails. There's only human to fail. Here's the key. What can I learn from this failure? Right? How do I grow from this failure? So what self-compassion does, and it's so important, especially in business context. I mean, people talk about learning from failure, failure being the best teacher, and yet no one wants to fail. But how can you learn if you don't fail, right? So what self-compassion does is it makes it okay to fail, but it also means that I want not to fail. What can I do to help? What can I learn from this situation? How can I grow? You know, developing a growth mindset, you know, the, the, the idea that I can do better if I try harder or if I learn new skills. It's associated with grit. You know, I'm going to keep trying even if things are difficult. So it actually it, it increases motivation, makes it more sustainable, and really importantly, allows you to learn from your failures, which is so important um, to grow. That that was those are all really good. <laughs> and I feel like and I feel like you answered like the next three questions I was going to ask you all in one. So thank yeah. you for that. So so yeah. is is self-compassion? Is it a skill? Like, can we build a habit of self-compassion if we practice it? Like, how does how does that work? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I have to um, be honest and say that it's not entirely natural for many people, maybe especially if you grew up in an, an environment where, you know, criticism or self-criticism was modeled for you. And then the other thing is that um, when we fail or we feel inadequate, we tend to feel threatened. And so we go into mm -hmm. fight, flight, or freeze mode. But because we're the problem, because we're inadequate, like we fight ourselves thinking, you know, if we, if we beat ourselves up, we'll, we'll control ourselves and do better. Or we flee into that sense of shame or we freeze and we get stuck. This is actually a natural reaction to threat. Um, if your best friend loses her job, like you aren't so threatened, <laughs> you're actually more able to do another system, which is the care response, which actually developed for other people. Right, the ability to tend and befriend, to be there for others when they need you, to be warm and responsive. But that system evolves more to care for others, where the threat defense system is more relevant to how we keep ourselves safe. So we have to do a little hack, 
<laughs> and so it doesn't feel entire, entirely natural at first, but it absolutely is possible. We just need to practice it. And the good news is, is we already know how to do it, right? We already know how to be warm and supportive and compassionate toward others. So we have the template there. It's not like it's a new skill. What's new is we have to remember and give ourselves permission to use this skill with ourselves. And so give me some examples of how we would like, what are some specific right. examples of how to practice that? Like in our daily lives? Yeah. Okay. So let's say, um, let's say you've got a really um, important podcast that you'd like to <laughs> get on and your computer crashes and probably because something that you did wrong. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you just a totally hypothetical example. <laughs> so one way would be to say, Oh my, Kristen, you're such, you're so stupid. I can't believe you, you know, you blew, this is really important. Or you really wanted to do this. You should have, you should have got, you could have, you should have updated your operating system. It's your fault. Okay. So I might do that, but is that really going to help? Is that going to help the situation? Is it going to help the podcast go better? It's, it's really just going to harm me, right? So what, what would I say if my best friend said, hey, Kristen, you know, I had this really important podcast and my computer crashed. Would I say to her to help her do it? You stupid fool. You should have updated your browser. It's your fault. No, I'd probably say, hey, first of all, it's not that big a deal. You can go on the phone instead. It happens to everyone. You've been really busy. I, I, I know intuitively that that's going to be more helpful. And so to practice it, all I've got to say is, would I say this to a friend? Yeah. And if the answer is no, what would I say to a friend? And then you just try it out for yourself. So, so that's one way to use it, using the language of a supportive friend. Um, there are also other tricks like physical touch. Um, because our body is, is evolved to interpret warm, caring touch as a signal of, you know, compassion. So you can put your hand on your heart or your face or just give yourself some kind of warm, supportive gesture. And that actually helps calm your body down, which allows your mind to follow. So um, we, we've actually developed a, a program called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. And I think we have 37 practices and exercises and we've got some guided meditations you can do. So it's definitely a learnable skill. Um, we know from the research that it gets better with practice. The more you do it, the more, the more self-compassionate you are. And the good news is, is it seems like almost anyone can learn it. I mean, even people... You know, some people that say your parents were really harsh and, it, you know, it's kind of almost scary to give yourself compassion because the, the signals of care got fused with signals of fear. Well, what we know is with the help of a good supportive therapist, you can kind of learn to give yourself that warmth and support and unconditional acceptance that maybe you didn't receive as a child. It may take a little work, it may take a little longer, but it absolutely is possible. And so how does um, practicing mindfulness or something like the loving kindness meditation, I know that's kind of directed towards others, but I'm assuming you could do it with yeah. yourself too, right? Like how so, does mindfulness yes. make us more open or better at being self-compassionate? Yeah. So a mindfulness and loving kindness aren't exactly the same as self-compassion, but they're really related. And what we know is that um, typically, mindfulness practice increases self-compassion. Um, you know, self-compassion practice, when you make it explicit, like, how do I treat myself kindly when I suffer, is perhaps a little more effective. But mm -hmm. just So mindfulness is accepting things as they are. I'm trying not to resist them, which makes them worse. Having a non-judgmental attitude, attitude towards yourself 
you know, and also sometimes situations that arise. So when you practice um, mindfulness, first of all, it helps reduce self-criticism because you're being mindful instead of resisting. So it kind of naturally opens your mind, opens your heart, and it makes it easier for self-compassionate feelings to arise. Um, having said that, it's not doesn't necessarily entail explicit warmth. I do, you know, you don't necessarily have to like put your hand on your heart and say, <laughs> "No, I'm so sorry, Kristen. It's so hard. I'm here for you." Right? That's almost an extra step, which strengthens mindfulness. But remember, mindfulness is part of self-compassion. You actually can't be self-compassionate if you aren't mindful. Right. So if you're reactive and just like running away with the storyline of how horrible you are, how, how horrible life is, you actually can't give yourself compassion. You, you need that perspective to give yourself compassion. So they're related, but they aren't exactly the same. Uh, and then loving kindness also is very related. Loving kindness is benevolence or goodwill toward yourself or others. Right. And so you can have loving kindness toward others, toward yourself. Um, the big difference here is compassion necessarily entails suffering just by definition. Mm. And often when suffering is present, it ain't so easy to be kind, right? <laughs> especially if your suffering is like that big mistake you just made. And so they, they say when loving kindness meets suffering and stays loving, then it manifests as compassion. Yeah, so it's like I the sunshine. That. Yeah. So the sunshine, and then when the sunshine hits the, the that kind of the, the tears of suffering, the rainbow of uh, self-compassion appears, they say. So it's like the same engine, but it's, it's can it stay loving, warm, benevolent, even when you're blaming yourself or you, or you feel inadequate in some way? And if so, it manifests in self-compassion. Yeah, well, but, but I both, just... But both practices help. And we know for this empirically, both practices, loving kindness meditation and mindfulness meditation, increase self-compassion. I, well, and I just learned something new too, because I have always practiced loving kindness meditation towards others, but never towards myself. So, uh, <laughs> so there yeah, you go. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so you can include yourself as one of the targets. You know, a lot of people have a tar- hard time feeling um, loving kindness toward themselves. It feels mm-hmm. awkward. So we, the way we teach it in our program is we have you first think of yourself with someone you love, like your pet or your grandmother, <laughs> and then you wish your, both, of, both of you well, and then you let like, your pet or your grandmother go, and you just focus on uh, yourself. But you kind so of need to get the natural. juices flowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you need to get the juices flowing for other people. Um, the same thing with self-compassion. You may first think of what you'd say to a friend where it's very easy. You get the ideas flowing, you get that warmth going, you get the oxytocin and the opiates going, <laughs> and then you just turn it inward, you tuck yourself in. And it seems to be a pretty effective technique. I love that. So let's talk about others in our life. Um, are, are, okay. I mean, how can we help others in our life, you know, develop self-compassion, be more self-compassionate to, you know, obviously self-compassionate to themselves. That doesn't make sense. Yes. <laughs> How can we help, yeah, no, help yeah, each other? Yeah. No, I, I get you. Do, yeah, do people, so, uh, do they need to learn it on their own or can we help them? And, and then maybe especially like with kids, can we help our yeah. kids cultivate self-compassion and how do we do that? Absolutely. Um, and the number one way is modeling it, Right. So, in other words, you know, maybe you're kind and compassionate to your child, but when you drop that glass, you go, oh, I'm such an idiot. So, what are you modeling? 
You know, so if you model for your child what it sounds like to be self-compassionate, oh, dear, I'm so upset. I, I really like that glass. Oh, well, it's only human. You know, clean it up. It's okay. And so the more you model those messages of warmth, understanding, acceptance, um, also motivation when you need it, then children will get the message that that's a good way to talk to yourself. Um, so, and then you can also talk explicitly to your children about self-compassion. And the easiest way really is through the idea of friendship. So by about seven years old, children are really learning about what it means to be a good friend. And you can just add in there, make sure you're also a good friend to yourself, mm-hmm. right? It's important to be a good friend to yourself as well as others. Um, and so that, those are two ways you can teach it to kids. Uh, another and, thing to know, and adults, I would assume. And adults, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you, don't, you don't want to shove this down anyone's throat, right? Yeah. If, if people feel awkward or, they, you know, they don't want to feel like they shouldn't have to feel like they're forced to do it or that they're doing one, thing, more, one more thing wrong if they aren't self-compassionate. Um, but certainly giving people permission to, to, to uh, be kind and supportive to themselves, helping allay any of these misconceptions, like it's going to make me weak, it's going to make me selfish, it's going to undermine my motivation, um, can really help them give, give it a chance. And, and yeah. what about like self-compassion in the workplace, especially when there's so much pressure to not make mistakes or if we work in a culture where we don't feel psychological safety and, you know, how, how do we, you know, and, and we we're yeah. kind of constantly <laughs> <laughs> under pressure to be perfect. Um, although well, we can't. <laughs> well, I know. I mean, that's the thing, like the culture, yeah, sure. They can try, but they aren't going to make human beings into robots. Well, I mean, they might someday, but right Eventually. now human beings are, and so does expecting the same mistakes is not acceptable. Does that really help? Right, because you're going to make a mistake whether or not people think it's acceptable. The real big key is how do you respond to that mistake? Does it derail you? Do you get overwhelmed by shame? Do you you criticize yourself? Do you you get so upset that you can't actually learn anything? That's actually not going to help you recover. It's not like if you're self-compassionate, you're going to make more mistakes. If anything, you'll make less mistakes right. because you'll have more resources, you'll be calmer, you're, you're going to be more supportive towards yourself to help. And then if you do make a mistake because you are only human, you aren't a robot, it means you'll be able to recover much more quickly. And, and um, how do and we, so research, like, go ahead. I'm sorry, ahead. Just, just saying there is research yeah. in the workplace showing that, for instance, um, it reduces employee burnout, it, improves, it reduces employee turnover, it increases job satisfaction. Because, you know, if you say to your employees, it's not okay to be human and they are human. You know, what kind of work environment is that? It's just, it's just impossible. But um, employees who are more self-compassionate, they are um, able to kind of deal with the stress more effectively, be more satisfied with their job and stick with it. Even if it gets hard, be motivated when they fail, keep trying, they have more grit, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's good for companies and good for employees. And so and as, leaders as well, of course. Well, I was yeah. gonna, that's where I was going to go. Like as, as yeah. a leader, you know, other than yeah. role modeling, self-compassion, how do I create an environment that, you know, promotes self-compassion, right? And that, that helps people kind of develop their own self-compassion and, and allows for them to, I don't even want to say mistakes, allows for them to be human. <laughs> Or you might say allow for them to learn effectively from their mistakes. We know mistakes happen. And we know in in the business environment, 
learning and recovering and growing. That's what it's all about, right? Right. And so I, that's something I think leaders can do just by communicating that, those, those values, right? That was, it's not, we aren't going to expect you to be perfect, but we are going to expect you to be open to learning from your mistakes. Like if you just try to blame other people or hide it, that's not going to help anyone. Mm, so yeah. it's like, it's okay to make mistakes as long as you really try to learn and grow from them. And that's part of the culture. Um, so so we, we developed a self-compassion training program at Dell Children's Hospital. And so we started training people there. And we really saw a culture shift. Not only were the individual nurses and doctors who took the training more self-compassionate, we started signaling to people, you know, when they made a mistake. Hey, it's okay. You know, it happens to everyone. Just, you know, it's okay. How can I help? Or, um, you know, thinking of more, more constructive criticism as opposed to name-calling. And it really did shift the culture in, in a really um, powerful way so that the culture became one of self-compassion. And by the way, all the parents then who were taking their kids to the children's hospital said, hey, where can I get some of this? This is great. <laughs> so so <laughs> it's contagious. Like, You're saying self-compassion is, is contagious there, <laughs> in actually, all the right there's ways. Actually, there's a research paper called Self-Compassion is Contagious where they found that, that, again, modeling out, out loud helps mm. other people be more self-compassionate. Because our culture doesn't support it. So it really is a culture shift that we need to make. We need to help each other you know, work with our mistakes as opposed to thinking we shouldn't be having them, that we should all be robots. And, you know, yeah. it's just, it ain't, it ain't so. <laughs> we are human, like it or not. Yes, we are. And we should celebrate that. <laughs> exactly. I like it. I don't want to be a do, robot. I do too. So, <laughs> so we talked about um, self-compassion myths. What, what are some yeah. common pitfalls for people? Like when they, you know, when they get stuck, when they're trying to be self-compassion or practice self-compassion, like what do people typically get stuck on and how do they overcome that? Yeah, th th that's a good question. So a couple things. One is actually a phenomena called backdraft that often arises for people. And so this is a, a term we borrow from firefighters who Backdraft is when, you know, a house is on fire and you open up the doors of the house, the air rushes in, the flames ignite and flames rush out. It can be very, actually quite scary. Uh, and a similar thing can happen when we practice self-compassion because maybe our entire life we've closed our hearts down and kind of numbed ourselves out just to get through daily life. And then we start opening the doors and you might say the care, the concern, the love rushes in and the old pain rushes out. Mm. And people think they're doing it wrong. Um, in fact, they're actually doing it right. <laughs> it means that the old stuff that we've shoved down in the recesses of our subconscious are starting to emerge so that they can be healed. Um, but we have to go slowly. We don't want to overwhelm ourselves. You know, sometimes we don't want to go to the most difficult, painful emotions we have right away. We want to get help, perhaps, or just dip our toe in the water and go slowly at a slow pace. And so that's really common. Backdraft occurs. It should occur. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It's just a natural part of the healing process. You know, like when your hands go numb, shoveling snow, and they start to warm up, they hurt. Right. <laughs> so when their hearts start to warm up, they can hurt. So that's one mm. thing that it's not really a pitfall that people think it's a problem. Um, and you have, to, you have to be careful with it, especially like if you have a trauma history. It can be, like I said before, it can be scary to practice self-compassion and it can, it can help to have a therapist walk you through it. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and then another thing that happens is 
sometimes, you know, we're clever little monkeys. <laughs> and sometimes we think that, ah, okay, I can use self-compassion as a, as a tricky new strategy to make my pain go away. But maybe if I'm self-compassionate, then I won't make mistakes. And then I won't have difficult experiences. It's kind of like I'll just throw some self-compassion at it. And my burnout cured and my relationship issues are cured. And, you know, it's like we, we try so hard to fix things it's all the, the time. Ma- it's the magic pill. <laughs> you know, yeah. And so sometimes people assume it's a magic pill. It's more like secret sauce. It makes everything taste better. But it's not, gonna, it's not like sugar coating. Does that make sense? It's like it, so it, it makes sense. still here. Pain is still here. Life, we're still imperfect. Life's still imperfect. It's a way of accompanying us through that imperfection as opposed to in some surreptitious way being perfect after all. It, it, kind, <laughs> of, it, it kind of reminds me of Dan Harris's 10%, why he calls uh, his book 10% Happier. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? It's not, right, it's not right. the magic pill, but it will, it will right. make you 10% happier. <laughs> it, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and it, and it will make it easier when the difficult things occur that that's for sure but it won't get rid of pain and it won't make you perfect but it will but it will help so i have one final question for you so is there is there a way to practice self-compassion like when you're doing well right like when you're not in a you know Ah. when things aren't difficult or painful and you know so so what does that look like and should you be practicing self-compassion when things are going well Yes. So um, the three components of self-compassion, which are a mindfulness, kindness, and a sense of common humanity, are equally relevant when things are going right as they are when things are going wrong. But in this case, I call it self-appreciation. Mm. So it's not really compassion because there's no suffering present, but we still need to, first of all, be mindful of when things are going right. Uh, and usually we aren't, actually. If, if it's not a problem, I don't have to fix. I'm not going to give it any of my working memory space, right? So we have to notice good things about ourselves or things that are going right in our, in our life. Um, being kind to ourselves means actually being grateful, being grateful to ourselves. Wow, that's a hard one. We're like, wow, that was a good job I did. Or, you know, that was a kind act I did. Or, you know, that, that went well. Or, again, being grateful for what's in your life, the good things as well as the bad things. That's part of kindness. Um, and then really important, common humanity, right? So remembering that life entails the good as well as the bad, right? So, so in other words, you don't, you don't think well of yourself as a way to think you're better than others, but just like, okay, these are some of my good qualities. All people have good qualities as well as bad qualities. And when we feel connected to others and our successes, it doesn't create that sense of isolation, which can almost make it difficult when you have success because like you feel, all, you know, it's lonely at the top, they say. Yeah. So with self with self with self appreciation, you can you can appreciate your success, but not in a way that makes you feel cut off from others or superior to others, but actually just connected to others, celebrating your successes and everyone's successes and the fact that we all have good qualities. So the three components are always relevant, um, and they but they feel different when it's when suffering is present or not. It's like that same thing I told you: loving kindness when the when the sunshine of loving kindness. The tears of suffering, the rainbow of compassion appears, but the sunshine is the sunshine either way. Right. right. Yeah. And so how do you, I mean, what's the, I guess the difference, you know, if I think about self-appreciation, like how do I make sure that I'm not just stroking my own ego? 
Right. So ironically, with there's not a lot of self in either self-appreciation or self-compassion. The ego is an involved. It really, you know, it's just this, this experience is arising. This experience is connected to lots of other people's experience and, you know, the life and culture and time and history and all these other factors. And so when suffering arises in this experience, I can be kind to it and feel connected. When happiness or, or you know, success arises, I can be kind and appreciate it. It's not really personal. It's not mm. about me, defining me as a failure or defining me as a success. It's more just, you know, again, coming with every, every single moment, whatever experience arises, painful or pleasant, success or failure, um, can we be with ourselves with an open heart? And when you do that, we don't really have to worry so much about, is it stroking my ego? I, I, it's not about me as compared to you. It's just like, yeah. oh, that was a nice thing that you did or that I did or that, was, that someone else did. It's just taking time to be grateful for what's good in our life. Um, I, and, and we don't cling to it or identify with it, if that makes sense. It, it makes total sense. And honestly, good. I can't think of a better <laughs> a better way to end this podcast because <laughs> that that whole that whole piece was just amazing and, and awesome. And I think I needed to hear it. And I know every single one of the listeners probably needed to hear it, too. So thank you so much um, for for this really meaningful conversation. I got so much out of it um, and I'm super energized by it. So um, wow. even with all of our technology issues, we you made it happen. <laughs> yes, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you and myself. <laughs> I'm so grateful Kristen could be with us today to talk about self-compassion. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. Be well.